1: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 120, The September Campaign Part 12, Poland's Allies. This begins our two-part series on the entry of Britain and France into the war on September 3, 1939. When the Germans had invaded Poland on September 1st, the two Western nations did not immediately enter the war, as their agreements with Poland might have pointed to and instead there would be a period of attempted negotiation. These attempts would mainly proceed along two routes, both of which would be equally unfruitful. The first was a series of warnings, and eventually an ultimatum to Germany, that they had to cease their actions in Poland immediately, or London and Paris would declare war. The second avenue of discussion revolved around the idea of an Italian-led conference between the major powers of Europe. Both of these avenues would drive the actions of politicians in both Western nations, with the warnings and ultimatums coming attached with future deadlines which delayed action, while the possibility of an Italian peace conference also meant further waiting before any real action was taken. On the home front in both nations, the constant coverage of the crisis on the Polish border over the previous weeks had made war seem more likely and after September 1st, real actions would very quickly be taken that brought the idea of a war firmly into every area of society, with actions like mobilizations and urban evacuations becoming front-page news in both nations. Today, we will cover roughly the first 48 hours of the war, as both the French and British governments tried to determine how best to react to the German aggression, and how they wanted to push forward, either by entering the war or trying to broker a peace, which would have been at the expense of Poland. In the last hours of August 31st, the direction that Germany would take in the following days was not precisely determined. What was obvious to the leaders in London and Paris was that the German government and press, which, remember, were, was entirely controlled by the Nazi party, were using escalating kind of rhetoric. Even with the escalation, whether or not war was imminent was unclear, with one report from the French ambassador in Berlin saying, quote, The German f- press is manifestly divided today between its care to keep the public on tenterhooks and its desire not to excite public opinion too much. Quote. "Then on the morning of September 1st there would be a period of information gathering as it took time for news of the German actions to reach the British and French governments and even longer for real details to begin flowing and to, you know, cause a change in action in the two governments." In London, Halifax would spend a good portion of the morning just trying to determine what exactly was happening as bits and pieces of information were relayed from British representatives in Poland and from the Polish government to their ambassador in London. They were also having to compare the information being received from Poland with the information being fed to them by the German ambassador. One example of this was around whether or not the early morning bombing of Warsaw had actually occurred. The Polish ambassador would tell Halifax that Warsaw had been bombed earlier that morning, but less than an hour later, the German ambassador said that no such incident had occurred. We have clear information about this attack now. We know that it happened. We know everything about it. But at the time, there was so much confusion about what exactly was happening that it was not completely impossible that the information coming from the Polish ambassador was simply bad information. It might not even be a case of him knowingly relaying bad information. There could just be confusion in Poland. Gathering the correct information was important because the military alliance that had been signed between Britain and Poland on September 25th was very clear, quote, In the event of any action which clearly threatened Polish independence, His Majesty's government would feel themselves bound at once to lend the Polish government all support in their power, End quote. Poland would call on London to honor its commitment on the morning of September 1st with clear instructions to the Polish ambassador to arrange for immediate assistance to be given. Instead of immediately declaring war, Chamberlain and the British government would take a moment to consider its course. During the morning, a meeting of the cabinet would be called to determine the government's response. There would be three primary decisions that would be made— The first was to begin a general mobilization of Britain's armed forces and to dispatch the Royal Air Force's advanced air striking force to France immediately. This was seen as a precautionary measure and was not considered a guarantee that Britain was going to war. The second major decision was that the cabinet would request a considerable sum from parliament for war funding. This was mostly to cover the costs of the precautionary measures that were being taken. The digital mobilization itself would cost the government money, along with everything else that was happening, and eventually the House of Commons would approve 500 million pounds to cover these costs. The third decision was to send a warning to Hitler and the German government to stop all aggression. Several hours would be sent writing up the message before it was sent to Henderson, the British ambassador in Berlin, to deliver. The time spent drafting the message meant that it would not be sent until middle of the afternoon, and then it was not delivered to the German government until 9pm. When the message was sent to Henderson, it included information on how it should be delivered, as well as this note to Henderson, quote, For your own information, if the German reply is unsatisfactory, the next stage will either be an ultimatum with a time limit or an immediate declaration of war, end quote. The important part of this communication, at least according to the British government, was that Henderson had to make it incredibly clear that it was not an ultimatum. Make sure he conveyed that it was not an ultimatum. This was because the British government did not want to make the Germans feel that they were being backed into a corner or that they did not have other options. That, that was very important that that was not the kind of how they received this first message. The British really did want the Germans to stop the invasion, and they really did want to negotiate. The conversations that were occurring in London that, that resulted in that communication were echoed by those occurring in Paris at the same time. The German invasion marked the end of a very long week for the French leaders. It had started with the announcement of the non-aggression pact between Germany and the Soviet Union on August 23rd, which had caused great alarm due to the threat that it placed on France's entire defensive strategy of alliance systems in Eastern Europe, which were kind of designed to ensure that there was a second front against Germany. The news prompted Daladay to hold a special meeting of the Council of National Defense, which brought together Daladay, Foreign Minister Benet, the head of the French Army, Navy, and Air Force, along with a collection of other military leaders. The questions posed before the group were simple. What should France choose to do if Germany attacked Poland or Romania? The answer was a mix of honoring France's previous commitments and then also doing very little. The first fact was that the French army was in no position, and would not be in such a position for many months after mobilization, to launch any kind of attack against Germany. As we discussed in earlier episodes, the French army was not set up or prepared for large offensive operations early in a war. It was instead far more focused on meeting a German attack and hopefully stopping it near the border. The hope was that just mobilizing the French army would pull some German troops away from Eastern Europe, but German actions in Eastern Europe would ensure that Germany would not launch an attack on France. This would give the French military maybe several months, possibly as long as into the spring of 1940, to prepare for action. These preparations could then be completed in association with Britain while economic warfare was waged against Germany. These were the general military plans for France that were in place when the news arrived that the Germans had crossed the Polish border. After a similar period of information gathering, the French leaders would take a very similar sort of list of actions to what had been done in London. Mobilization would be ordered, with the mobilization being clearly seen as a precautionary measure with no decision made on whether or not war would be declared. There would also be a message sent to Berlin as a warning, again, not an ultimatum, it should be very clear, it was not an ultimatum. One of the reasons that these actions were so similar to the British actions is because London and Paris would be in constant communication throughout the day, with the message to the French ambassador in Berlin saying, quote, The British government have instructed your colleague to present to the German government an urgent communication of which Sir Neville Henderson will himself inform you. You should associate yourself with this step, end quote. The French ambassador would deliver his written message to Ribbentrop at 10 p.m. on September 1st, and just a little while after the British did. It would say in part, quote, "As a consequence, I have to inform your excellency that unless the German government is prepared to give the French government satisfactory assurances that the German government has suspended all aggressive action against Poland and is ready promptly to withdraw its troops from Polish territory, the French government will unhesitatingly fulfill its obligations to Poland. Quote. While the French and British leaders were trying to determine their path forward, the German and Polish governments were actively trying to influence the choices that were being made by other nations. On the Polish side, it mostly involved several messages being sent from the foreign minister to the Polish ambassadors abroad and in London and Paris, as well as other places, about what actions were being taken by the Germans and calling on the British and French and other nations to honor their commitments or to condemn the German actions. The Polish leaders hoped that even if the French or British could not launch a ground attack against Germany immediately, they could declare war and then immediately go to work with their air power. They could begin bombing Germany or even send resources to fight in Poland. One of the messages would state, quote, We are already fighting along the entire front with the bulk of the German forces, fighting for every meter, and even the garrisons at Westerplatte is defending itself. The intervention of the entire Air Force is taking on an increasingly brutal form. Today, we have extensive civilian casualties." On the other side, the German representatives around Europe and the world were being told to firmly downplay the events that were occurring, with one of the memorandums sent in the evening saying, quote, In defense against Polish attacks, German troops moved into action against Poland at dawn today. This action is for the present not to be described as war, but merely as engagements which have been brought about by Polish attacks, end quote. The German goal was simply to introduce some level of doubt among other national leaders about events at the time when there was already a tremendous amount of confusion about what was happening. Many nations outside of Britain and France would respond to events, with one of the more important, for reasons we will later discuss, being from the United States. One of the key features of the American interaction was for President Roosevelt to request that all sides agree not to perform any aerial bombings of civilian targets. The bombing had already occurred over Warsaw, but the British government was quick to offer such assurances to the Americans, with the message stating, quote, His Majesty's government welcomed the weighty and moving appeal of the President of the United States against the bombardment from the air of civilian populations or of unfortified cities. Deeply impressed with the humanitarian considerations to which the President message refers, it was already the settled policy of His Majesty's government, should they become involved in hostilities, to refrain from such action and to combine bombardment to strictly military objectives upon the understanding that those same rules would be scrupulously observed by all other opponents." This would be one of the reasons that, in the early days of the war, the Royal Air Force would avoid civilian targets, and instead of dropping bombs over cities, they would instead drop propaganda leaflets. On the next day, September 2nd, the most important discussion that would occur in London and Paris revolved around securing funds to pay for the mobilization orders that had been given the day before. In both cases, this involved permission from the rest of the government. In London, this involved Chamberlain giving an overview of the events to Parliament and asking them to vote for the new spending. Chamberlain would also make it clear that the policy of the British government was, as of September 2nd, one that would allow for, and in fact encourage, possible negotiations, saying before the Commons, quote, His Majesty's government will, as stated yesterday, be bound to take action unless the German forces are withdrawn from Polish territory. They are in communication with the French government as to the limit of time within which it would be necessary for the British and French governments to know whether the German government were prepared to effect such a withdrawal. If the German government should agree to withdraw their forces, then His Majesty's government would be willing to regard the position as being the same as it was before the German forces crossed the Polish frontier. That is to say, the way would be open to discussion between the German and Polish governments on the matters at issue between them, on the understanding that the settlement arrived at was one that safeguarded the vital interests of Poland and was secured by an international guarantee. If the German and Polish governments wished that other powers should be associated with them in the discussion, His Majesty's government, for their part, would be willing to agree." Quote. The commons would approve the necessary funding, But one thing would be clear soon after the commons adjourned. There was growing pressure for the British government to issue a firm ultimatum at the earliest possible moment to force Germany to change its course of action. This was communicated to Chamberlain with the general vibe of the messages being that if an ultimatum was not delivered, efforts would be made to create a new government without him. This pressure resulted in late evening meetings among the cabinet as they tried to decide what an ultimatum would look like and when it should be delivered. The eventual decision would be made at around 10pm that an ultimatum would be delivered by Henderson at 9am the next morning, with a two-hour expiration. Chamberlain is recorded as ending the topic by asking for any dissenting votes in the cabinet before saying, Right, gentlemen, this means war. In this decision, they would work closely with the French, with Halifax speaking to Bonnet on the telephone at 10.30pm. The French government was divided on the best course of action. Daladay and some of the other members were in favor of an ultimatum, accepting the possibility of war, while others, like Foreign Minister Bonnet, held out hope that the Italian mediation offers would bear fruit and prevent war from occurring at all. Binet's hesitance to deliver an ultimatum, which would prompt war if unanswered, would manifest in his protest to Halifax that an ultimatum with an expiration of just a few hours after it was given would simply prompt Germany into feeling like it could not respond. Binet wanted the British to instead delay in its delivery until at least noon Berlin time, and then not place an expiration until the early morning of September 4th, you know, almost 24 hours later. But Halifax made it clear that delivering the ultimatum as early as possible the next morning was essential if the current British government was to remain in its position as the current British government. Eventually, both Chamberlain and Halifax would have discussions with their French counterparts to join them in delivering an ultimatum at the same time, as a show of unity of thought and action— Dalladay was initially hesitant to the quick turnaround time, much like Bonnet, with both getting pressure from Gamelin and the military leaders that more measures should be taken to prepare the French military before war was declared, with at least another 48 hours requested to to continue mobilization. But eventually the decision would be made to join with the British in their ultimatum, defaulting back to the same consideration that had driven French policy for over a decade at all costs the alliance with Britain must be maintained. Next episode, we will continue our story of the delivery of these ultimatums. But before we end here, I thought it would be interesting to present you with the full transcript of the speech made by President Daliday to the French Chamber of Deputies on September 2nd, 1939, where he lays out the actions that were happening in Poland, The whole nation is answering the call with serious and resolute calm. The young men have rejoined their regiments. They are now defending our frontiers. The example of dignified courage which they have set to the world must provide inspiration for our debates. In a great impulse of natural brotherliness, they have forgotten everything which only yesterday could divide them. They no longer acknowledge any service but the service of France. As we send them the grateful greeting of the nation, let us all pledge ourselves together to be worthy of them. Thus has the government put France into a position to act in accordance with our vital interests and with national honor. It has now the duty of setting forth before you the facts as they are, fully, frankly, and clearly. Peace has been endangered for several days. The demands of Germany on Poland were threatening to provoke a conflict. I shall show you in a moment how, perhaps, for the first time in history, all the peaceful forces of the world, moral and material, were leagued together during those days and during those nights to save the world's peace but just when it could still be hoped that all those repeated efforts were going to be crowned with success, Germany abruptly brought them to naught. During the day of August 31st, the crisis reached its peak, when Germany had at last let Great Britain know that she agreed to hold direct negotiations with Poland, a course which she had, let it be said, refused to me. Poland, in spite of the terrible threat created by the sudden armed invasion of Slovakia by the German forces, at once endeavored to resort to this peaceful method at one o'clock in the afternoon, Mr. Lipsky, the Polish ambassador to Germany, requested an audience from Herr von Ribbentrop. Peace seemed to be saved, but the Reich Minister of Foreign Affairs would not receive Mr. Lipsky until 7.45 p.m., seven hours later. While the latter was bringing the consent of his government to direct conversations, the German minister refused to communicate Germany's claims to the Polish ambassador, on the pretext that the ambassador had not full powers to accept or reject them on the spot. At 9pm, the German wireless was communicating the nature and the full extent of these claims. It added that Poland had rejected them. That is a lie. That is a lie since Poland did not even know them. And at dawn on September 1st, the Fuhrer gave his troops the order to attack. Never was aggression more unmistakable and less warranted, nor for its justification could more lies and cynicism have been brought into play. Thus was war unleashed, at the time when the most noteworthy forces, the authorities who were at the same time the most respected and the most impartial, had ranged themselves in the service of peace, at the time when the whole world had joined together to induce the two sides to come into direct contact so as to settle peacefully the conflict which divides them. The head of Christianity had given voice to reason and feelings of brotherhood. President Roosevelt had sent moving messages and proposed a general conference of all countries. The neutral countries had been active in offering their impartial good offices. Need I say that to each of these appeals the French government gave an immediate welcome and complete assent. I myself, gentlemen, if I may be allowed to reference my own person, thought it my duty as a Frenchman to approach Herr Hitler directly. The head of the German government had let me know on August 25th through Mr. Coulandre, our ambassador in Berlin, that he deplored the fact that in case of an armed conflict between Germany and Poland, German blood and French blood might be shed. I immediately had a definitive proposal put to the Fuhrer, a proposal wholly inspired by their real concern to safeguard without any delay the peace of the world now imperiled. You were able to read. I think, in fact, that you must have read these texts. You know the answer I was given. I will not dwell on it. But we were not disheartened by the failure of the step, and once more we backed up the effort of which Mr. Chamberlain devoted himself with splendid stubbornness. The documents exchanged between London and Berlin have been published, on the one side impartial and preserving loyalty, on the other side embarrassment, shifty and shirking behavior. I'm also happy at this juncture to pay my tribute to the noble efforts made by the Italian government— Even yesterday we strove to unite all men of goodwill, so as to at least to stave off hostilities, to prevent bloodshed, and to ensure that the methods of conciliation and arbitration should be substituted for the use of violence. Gentlemen, these efforts towards peace, however powerless they were and still remain, will at least have shown where the responsibility lies. They ensure for Poland, the victim, the effective cooperation and moral support of the nations and of the free men of all lands." What we did before the beginning of this war, we are ready to do once again. If renewed steps are taken towards conciliation, we are still ready to join in. If the fighting were to stop, if the aggressor were to retreat within his own frontiers, if free negotiations could be started, you may well believe, gentlemen, the French government would spare no effort to ensure, even today, if it were possible, the success of these negotiations in the interests of peace of the world. But time is pressing. France and England cannot look on when a friendly nation is being destroyed, a foreboding of further onslaughts eventually aimed at England and France. Indeed, are we only dealing with German-Polish conflict? We are not, gentlemen. What we have to deal with is a new stage in the advance of the Hitler dictatorship toward the domination of Europe and the world. How indeed are we to forget that the German claim to the Polish territories had been long marked on the map of Greater Germany, and that it was only concealed for some years to facilitate other conquests. So long as the German-Polish pact, which dates back only a few years, was profitable to Germany, Germany respected it. On the day when it became a hindrance to marching towards domination, it was denounced unhesitatingly. Today we are told that once the German claims against Poland are satisfied, Germany would pledge herself before the whole world for 10, for 20, for 25 years, for all time, to restore or to respect peace. Unfortunately, we have heard such promises before. On May 25th, 1935, Chancellor Hitler pledged himself not to interfere with the internal affairs of Austria and not to unite Austria to the Reich, and on March 11th, 1938, the German army entered Vienna. Chancellor Sushanig was imprisoned for daring to defend his country's independence, and no one today can say what his real fate after so many physical and moral sufferings may be. Now we are to believe that it was Dr. Sushanig's act of provocation that brought about the invasion and enslavement of his country. On September 12, 1938... Herr Hitler declared that the Sudeten problem was an internal matter which concerned only the German minority of Bohemia and the Czechoslovak government. A few days later, he maintained that the violent persecutions carried on by the Czechs were compelling him to change his policy. On September 26th of the same year, he declared that his claim to the Sudeten territory was the last territorial claim that he would make in Europe. On March 14th, 1939, Herr Hasche was summoned to Berlin, ordered under the most stringent pressure to accept an ultimatum. A few hours later, Prague was being occupied in contempt of the signed pledges given to other countries in Western Europe. In this case also, Herr Hitler endeavored to put on the victims the onus which in fact lies on the aggressor. Finally, on January 30, 1939, Herr Hitler spoke in loud praise of the non-aggression pact which he had signed five years previously with Poland. He paid a tribute to this agreement as a common act of liberation and solemnly confirmed his intention to respect its clauses. But it is Herr Hitler's deeds that count, not his word. What then is our duty? Poland is our ally. We entered into commitments with her in 1921 and 1925. These commitments were confirmed. I myself in the chamber said on May 11th last... As a result of the journey of the Polish Minister of Foreign Affairs to London and of the reciprocal pledges of guarantee given by Great Britain and Poland by a common agreement with this noble and brave nation, we took the measures required for the immediate and direct application of our Treaty of Alliance. Parliament approved this policy. Since then, we have never failed both in diplomatic negotiations and in public utterances to prove faithful to it. Our ambassador in Berlin has several times reminded Herr Hitler that if a German aggression were to take place against Poland, we should fulfill our pledges. And on July 1st in Paris, the Minister of Foreign Affairs said to the German ambassador to France, France has definite commitments to Poland. These engagements have been further strengthened as a result of the latest events, and consequently, France will at once be at Poland's side as soon as Poland herself takes up arms. Poland has been the object of the most unjust and brutal aggression. The nations who have guaranteed her independence are bound to intervene in her defense. Great Britain and France are are not powers that can disown or dream of disowning their signatures. Already last night on September 1st, the French and British ambassadors were making a joint overture to the German government. They handed to Herr von Ribbentrop the following communication from the French government and the British government, which I will ask your leave to read out to you. Quote, Earlier this morning, the German Chancellor issued a proclamation to the German army which clearly indicated that he was about to attack Poland. Information which has reached His Majesty's government in the United Kingdom and the French government indicates that German troops have crossed the Polish frontier and that attacks upon Polish towns are proceeding— In these circumstances, it appears to the governments of the United Kingdom and France that by their action the German government have created conditions which call for the implementation by the governments of the United Kingdom and France of the undertaking to Poland to come to her assistance. I am accordingly to inform Your Excellency that unless the German government are prepared to give the French government and His Majesty's government satisfactory assurances that the German government have suspended all aggressive action against Poland and are prepared promptly to withdraw their forces from Polish territory, the French government and His Majesty's government in the United Kingdom will without hesitation fulfill their obligations to Poland. And indeed, gentlemen, it is not only the honor of our country, it is also the protection of our vital interests that is at stake. For a France which should allow this aggression to be carried out would very soon find itself a scorned, an isolated, a discredited France, without allies and without support, and doubtless would soon herself be exposed to a formidable attack. This is the question I lay before the French nation, and all nations. At the very moment of the aggression against Poland, what value has the guarantee, once more renewed, given for our eastern frontier, for our Alsace, for our Lorraine? after the repudiation of the guarantees given in turn to Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. More powerful through their conquests, gorged with the plunder of Europe, the masters of inexhaustible natural wealth, the aggressors, would soon turn against France with all their forces. Thus our honor is but the pledge of our own security. It is not that abstract and obsolete form of honor of which conquerors speak to justify their deeds of violence— It is the dignity of a peaceful people which bears hatred towards no other people in the world, and which never embarks upon a war save only for the sake of its freedom and of its life. Forfeiting our honor would purchase nothing more than a precarious peace liable to rescission. And when tomorrow we should have to fight after losing the respect of our allies and of other nations, we should no longer be anything more than a wretched people doomed to defeat and bondage." I feel confident that not a single Frenchman harbors such thoughts today. But I know well too, gentlemen, that it is hard for those who have devoted their whole lives to the cause of peace and who are still prompted by a peaceful ideal to reply by force if needed to deeds of violence. As head of the government, I I am not the man to make an apology for war in these tragic hours. I fought before, like most of you. I can remember." I shall not utter a single one of those words that the genuine genuine fighters look upon as blasphemous, but I desire to do my plain duty, and shall do it as an honorable man. Gentlemen, while we are in session, Frenchmen are rejoining their regiments. Not one of them feels any hatred in his heart against the German people. Not one of them is giving way to the intoxicating call of violence and brutality, but they are ready, unanimously, to discharge their duty with a quiet courage which delivers its inspiration from a clear conscience. Gentlemen, You who know what those Frenchmen are thinking, you who even yesterday were among them in our provincial towns and in our countryside, you who have seen them go off and will not contradict me if I invoke their feelings here. They are peace-loving men, but they have decided to make every sacrifice needed to defend the dignity and freedom of their country. If they have answered our call, as they have done, without a moment's hesitation, without a murmur, without flinching, That is because they feel all of them, in the depths of their hearts, that it is, in truth, whatever may be said, the very existence of France that is at stake. You know better than anyone else that no government, no man, would be able to mobilize France merely to launch her into an adventure. Never would the French rise to invade the territory of a foreign country. Theirs is the heroism for defense and not for conquest. When you see France spring to arms, it is because she feels herself threatened." It is not France only that has arisen. It is that whole, far-flung empire under the sheltering folds of the tricolor. From every corner of the globe, moving protestations of loyalty from all the protected or friendly races are reaching the mother country today. The union of all Frenchmen is thus echoed beyond the seas by the union of all peoples under our protection, who have in the hour of danger, are proffering both their arms and their hearts." And I wish also to salute all the foreigners settled on our soil, who, on this very day, in their thousands and thousands, as though they were the volunteers of imperiled freedom, are placing their courage and their lives at the service of France. Our duty is to make an end of aggression and violent undertakings, by means of peaceful settlement, if we can still do so, and this we shall strive our utmost to achieve, by the wielding of our strength." if all sense of morality as well as all glimmering of reasons has died within the aggressors. If we were not to keep our pledges, if we were to allow Germany to crush Poland within a few months, perhaps within a few weeks, what could we say to France if we had to face aggression once more? Then would those most determined soldiers ask us what we had done for our friends? They would feel themselves alone under the most dreadful threat, and might lose, perhaps for all time, the confidence which now spurs them on. Gentlemen, in these hours when the fate of Europe is in the balance, France is speaking to us through the voice of her sons, through the voice of those who have already accepted if need be the greatest sacrifice of all. Let us recapture, as they have done, that spirit which fired all the heroes of our history. France rises with such impetuous impulses, only when she feels in her heart that she is fighting for her life and for her independence. Gentlemen, today France is in command.